you want an interesting read, supplemental to First and Second Samuel, especially if you want to capitalize on that word interesting, you really can't beat Gene Edwards' A Tale of Three Kings. It tells the story of David, Saul, and David's son, Absalom. Um, and what it's really about is how, how God uses even the sins of others to cultivate broken in, brokenness in us because through that brokenness comes character. And in the very beginning, there's this odd scene for the existence of the world, all the angels in attendance and all of these disembodied souls and an angel speaks and says, God has a gift to give, and it's the gift of power. And a soul comes forward and claims it, and that's Saul. And then he speaks again, and he says, God has another gift to come, or a gift to give, and it's the gift of character. And it's David who comes forward and claims that. And as we'll see tonight, David is authentically the real deal. One of the points that Gene Edwards makes is that uh, godliness doesn't exist at all unless it comes from down deep. And that's, that's what we see in, in David tonight is um, a, a questionable amount of integrity. We're going to watch as he navigates things and basically as we look at these first chapters, uh, what we're going to see is a defense of David's innocence. And it's worth pointing out why this is necessary. Keep in mind here that what we're going to see tonight is the transition from the reign of Saul to the reign of David. Now, Saul's public articulation of his relationship with David is he's an enemy who wants to take me out and take my throne. Now, if you've been studying with us, you know that that's not all the case, that David has had multiple opportunities to do just that and has refused to do so. But over the course of tonight, uh, let's just take the first example in hand. By the end of chapter 1, he will be holding in his hand Saul's own crown. How did he get it? How is it that he comes to reign instead of Saul's only remaining son, Ishbael? How is it uh, that Abner... Saul's great general who outlives Saul, how is it that he ends up brutally murdered in Hebron where David is living? If you wanted to paint a conspiracy theory of David, it wouldn't be hard to do unless you had 2 Samuel. But what's really striking is not just this presentation of here's the real story of what actually happened that shows that David's hands are bloodless but a tremendous demonstration of David's character. I said recently that uh, what marks David, if you can define his character in one word, I think of all the people in the Bible, save maybe Moses himself, David is the meekest. And what I mean by that is that David is given promises by God and patiently waits for them to come, never reaches out, never holds on to them, never holds them tightly when they're at risk, he honestly believes that God will do what he says he will do, and he leaves what's God's and only God's in God's hands. And we'll see that over and over again tonight. Now, 2 Samuel is a sequel that's not a sequel. Okay? 
In most Hebrew Bibles, 1 and 2 Samuel is a single book just called Samuel. And so we'll notice as we pick up tonight the transition from what we were reading last week at the end of 1 Samuel to this week in 2 Samuel is so natural. However, there is a significant structural point. Notice verse 1, after the death of Saul. And the reason why I wanted to point that phrase out to you is because we've encountered, excuse me, we've encountered it twice as we've been walking through the Bible book by book. It always marks a significant transition. The first time we read it was after the death of Moses. That's what opens the book of Joshua. And then after the death of Joshua, that's what opens the book of Judges. It's not just a marker of what happened last week, like the catch-up at the beginning of a TV series. It's a significant transition in what God is doing. And so, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And so, while Saul and Jonathan and many other Israelites are dying at Mount Gilboa, engaged against the Philistines... David has gone back. The Philistines refuse to have him on the front line, so he's not even in the battle where Saul dies. And when he comes home to his uh, hometown of Ziklag, uh, given to him by one of the Philistine kings, uh, he finds that all of his people, the wives and the children, it's been raided. They've all been taken by the Amalekites. And so he goes off, and with God's help, he saves everyone who's been kidnapped, And so then he returns to Ziklag and he's there two days before he hears the news of the battle on the front lines. And so, verse 2, on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And so notice here, this man comes running into camp and his clothes are a mess And that's not just because the travels are long or because he didn't have time to shower. The idea here of torn clothes and dirt on his head, that's mourning, okay? It's an external signifier that the news he comes to bear is bad news. Then the second thing I want you to notice is as soon as he gets there, he falls down before David and pays homage. He honors David, okay? Verse 3, David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from battle. And also, many people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered and said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him, or beside him, and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen." And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. And so here's the story he tells. It's pretty simple. I just so happened to be in this part of the battle. 
Uh, the way this man identifies himself is as an Amalekite. That's an enemy of Israel. But as we saw in verse uh, 3, he identifies himself as coming from the camp of Israel. So for whatever reason, it appears he's an Amalekite who sided with Israel. And he happens to be where the battle is raging on Gilboa. And he says here that he saw Saul hard-pressed and injured in a way that he was clearly going to die. And Saul calls to him and says, take my life so that I don't fall into enemies' hands. And he does so, and then he takes the crown, and he takes the bracelet, and he brings them here to report to David. Now, when we read the story of Saul's death at the end of 1 Samuel, uh, it plays out a little bit differently. There's no mention of an Amalekite. It is true that we find Saul hard-pressed and mortally wounded, but he turns to his armor-bearer and says, take my life. And the armor-bearer refuses. So Saul takes his own life, and then the armor-bearer follows suit and takes his life. Okay. So when we read the story here, there's really, uh, there's really three options. The one that critics like to jump on is, well, clearly we have two different traditions, and they can't both be true. Okay. Now the problem with that is, like I said, uh, the book of First and Second Samuel are so closely related that historically they were probably one book. And so it seems very unlikely, even if an author was drawing from multiple sources, that, it would let, uh, that they would let the contradiction stand. In fact, it's ironic to me how often these self-same critics uh, point to places where it's clearly been explained away to make rid of differences, and then on the other side point out the differences as evidence of multiple and contradictory sources. You really can't have your cake and eat it too. Either the authors are smart enough to hide something or they're not. It can't be both ways. What's more likely going on here, and this is, would be my suggestion to you, is that what's actually happened here is this Amalekite has stumbled upon the corpse of Saul. And his desire here is to ingratiate himself with King David. I mean, he's come across a pretty significant spoil. We don't know much about the metallurgy of the diadems of the kings of Israel. But I would imagine if you find a king's crown and his royal bracelet, in the same way that we would talk about the royal jewels, it's probably a pretty good find. But he recognizes an even better usage of those things would be to get on David's good side. He's bargaining for a greater reward. In fact, we know, according to uh, a later reference to this, um, that David knows that that's the guy's motive, that he's here to try and get something out of David. And so I would suggest to you that as an Amalekite who stumbles across this, he's just lying. He's just being deceptive. There is another suggestion that's sometimes made, and it's not necessarily a bad one, which is that Saul is really terrible at suicide. And so he tries to take his own life. His armor bearer does take his own life, and so now it's just Saul there, and he's mortally wounded by uh, the arrows of his enemies and by his own sword, but still, still alive. And that's how the Amalekite comes into play. Okay? Both of those, I think, are, are good options but either way, the motivation here, whether this man is telling the truth or if he's making it up, his motivation is, hey, I was there at the death of your enemy. You should reward me. That's what he's after here. Uh, now, remember again, 
We've seen this pattern play out before. How many times has David had the opportunity or the counsel to rejoice in the death of Saul, to take advantage of the circumstances to bring it about? And so even his own uh, military generals are saying, look, God has delivered Saul into your hands. Here he is uh, relieving himself in a cave, and we're just sitting quietly in the back of it, fully armed while he's half undressed. This is God's will for your life, David. And David says, I will not slay the Lord's anointed. And it happens again. This time he sneaks into the camp and finds not just Saul asleep, but his number one gun, Abner, asleep next to him. And he gets right up next to him. And one of his generals says, I won't have to hit twice. The spear's right there. We can end this right now. And David refuses. And so here it is. Here is the real story of what happens with David when he finds out what happened to Saul. And notice how surprising it is. Verse 8, and he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Okay. Now, David asked for clarification on this. It's already been mentioned. He wants to know who this person is. A couple of things. Okay. One, the Amalekites were supposed to be wiped out by Saul. That's Saul's great failure, right? That he doesn't wipe out all of the Amalekites. In fact, he leaves King Agag alive. The fact that these people still exist at all is part of Saul's failure. In fact, if this man really did kill Saul, think of the irony in that. Saul is called to kill the Amalekites, to kill King Agag, and he refuses to do so, and then he's killed himself by an Amalekite. But even if that's not what happened, even if he's making it up, David knows that these people are an enemy of Israel. And the second thing I want, uh, I want you to understand here, where is it? Verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Okay, so he repeats it again, but it's that word sojourner I want to reference. Okay, the sojourners are the resident aliens of Israel. They're not Israelites, they're foreigners who have sided with Israel, who live with Israel. If you go back and read Deuteronomy, significantly that makes them subject to the laws of Israel. Okay? The sojourners were to keep the laws of the covenant. Over and over again we read in Deuteronomy, uh, the feasts are for you and your children and your servants and anyone who sojourns with you. The law is for you and your servants and your children and anyone who sojourns with you. In other words, I would suggest to you that this man, by his own admission, puts himself under David's jurisdiction. Okay. And so, uh, we, we missed something because I misread. So let's go back to verse 11. This is David's response. David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and the people of the Lord for the house of Israel because they'd fallen by the sword. His reaction here is one of deep sorrow and public mourning. Okay. Not applause, not rejoice, not even relief. It's over. He's been running from Saul for seven years and he hears that Saul is dead and that Jonathan is dead and he tears his clothes and he begins to weep and he states a fast for his whole household, and they mourn. 
And then as we saw, David asked the man, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. Verse 14, David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Now remember, the Amalekites already made clear in his version of the story, he was clearly going to die. It was a mercy killing. But David says, how could you do this? How were you not afraid to touch the Lord's anointed, to slay the Lord's anointed? Remember, even Saul's armor bearer, that's probably his motivation. When Saul turns to his armor bearer and says, kill me before the enemy does, and he refuses, maybe it's just young fear. But maybe he's learned from David, this isn't right, this isn't appropriate, I'm not going to take the life of Saul. But by his own admission, this Amalekite has killed the king of Israel. Verse 15, David called to one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And so he says it's a just capital punishment consequence for this man. So imagine, imagine you're a Benjamite. Imagine Saul is your hero from your tribe, chosen out of your families. You were there the day that he was selected by lot. Even though he was hiding behind the stuff, God said, that's the king of Israel. Then imagine you hear about the battle. You know that David's been with the Philistines and now the Philistines have wiped out Saul. You start to hear other facts. You hear that David is reigning in Hebron and that he has the crown of Saul, right? These things become significant in telling the story. It may even be that 2 Samuel's purpose in these early chapters is as an apologetic to explain the truth so that there's no misunderstanding, so that there's clarity of what's going on. But like I said, it points beyond just David's innocence to a tremendous amount of character. And this is only exhibit A. Watch as it goes on here. And so he executes this Amalekite, and then the next thing he does is he writes a song to commemorate the death of Saul and Jonathan. Verse 17, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan and his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it's written in the book of Jasher. Now we know that David was a songwriter. He was a psalmist, right? He wrote many of the songs that Israel sang in their worship. And so he writes this song not just to express himself, but to give Israel the words to express themselves. He writes it and he publicizes it. And he says this is to commemorate Saul and Jonathan, I want you to listen to the level of honor in this. Effectively, what we have is a eulogy here, and it's very common, and I'm not even sure it's inappropriate to recognize that oftentimes when we eulogize people at funerals, we do pretty hefty editing, right? Have you ever noticed? It's like maybe somebody you know very well, but by the time they die, they're, they're a saint, and we only talk about at the funeral the best and the greatest. It's like we lose half of who they really are. I think there's a sense where that's probably appropriate to recognize that we're prone to that. But if you were to take a study in scripture of a eulogy for someone who is a mixed bag, in the mouth of King David, it's all honor. I mean, listen, verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. 
how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Where are those places? Those are Philistine cities. He says, don't let the report be known to the Philistines, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Okay, and then he speaks directly to Gilboa. This is the place where Saul and Jonathan died. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. And so he speaks to the mountain and he effectively curses it. He says, don't let this be a, frutal, a fruitful and a fertile place anymore. Let it be bone dry. And then he says, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Two things there. First off, shields in these days are leather shields. Okay? And so the oil is something that you constantly work on a shield if you're still a living soldier because it keeps it uh, from being brittle. It keeps it so that it's actually effective. And what he's mourning here is the fact that Saul's shield is just rotting out in the wilderness never to be oiled again because the soldier no longer needs it because Saul is dead. The second thing I want you to notice is here he doesn't, he doesn't meditate on the fallen corpse of Saul but something nearby. Right? He, he is alluding to the death of Saul without talking about it, by talking uh, about the shield. That's something we still do. Even in film today, sometimes when we show, show death, we blur out the background where the death is taking place, and there's something in the foreground that's just symbolic of the reality of that loss. David is a true artist, and that's what he does here. And then verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. The sword of Saul returned not empty. So now he turns to this final battle and he says, Saul and Jonathan did valiantly. They fought with all their fat, the fat of the mighty. Okay, for, for us, we take the picture of fat and we think of it in terms of like lethargic or unathletic. Uh, the idea here of fat though is strength. From, from everything they are, they fought uh, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. So not only were they courageous in their last stand, uh, but they took many with them. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death they were not divided. Now that's the first place where we see selective editing. Saul and Jonathan were not always on good terms. Here he talks as if they always stood together but we know that when Jonathan tried to stand up for David and confront his dad and his craziness, the spear that had been thrown multiple times at David was now thrown at Saul's own son. But here he recognizes that the, the large testimony of their life, if you will, were as two of the great heroes of Israel who stood together to fight against Israel's enemies. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. In other words, Saul's ministry as king, as the one who fought for Israel, brought wealth to Israel. And he says, you women should weep over Saul. And then notice here in verse 25 how we have the repeated refrain. You remember how it opened? Your glory is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. And he repeats it here, verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. 
There's a structural significance to that too. He saves the climax of the poem for Jonathan. He brings back around the beginning, and whereas it was only the glory slain there, here we find that the glory is Jonathan. In fact, verse 26, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love was extraordinary, suppressing the love of women. When he says he's distressed there, that's a really lame English, English term for the Hebrew word here. It means overwhelmed with grief. He's not agitated that Jonathan's gone. It's, it's striking here because he calls all of Israel, all the women, the daughters of Israel, to weep for Saul, but he weeps for Jonathan. And he says, he says, Jonathan was my brother, very pleasant you have been to me. And then he says, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Jonathan was David's best and closest friend, his deepest and most intimate relationship. And then he finishes here with that refrain again, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And so here publicly, not only does he honor Saul, but he calls for Israel to honor Saul. What I would suggest to you is some of the reasons we eulogize and sanctify the dead are bad reasons. It's because it's easier to cope. It's because it's easier to process. Sometimes we don't know what to do with the death of the wicked, and sometimes we know the wicked by name. But here, what seems to be motivating David is that he, he knows that as significant as the bad is, significant as the evil is, it doesn't erase the reality of the good. We talked about this last week with the witch of Endor. Although she is uh, involved in spiritism, spiritism uh, and because of that, by Israel's law, she deserves to die, she takes compassion on King Saul. King Saul, who ran her out of town and makes sure that he eats. People are, uh, are a mixed bag, and all, that's, all that David does here is not eradicate the evil, but he doesn't allow the evil to eradicate the good either. Saul was God's chosen king and a victor in Israel who brought about great victories over the Philistines. What I would suggest to you is that this is not a ploy. This is not PR. This is not spin. This is not David hedging his bets or covering his bases because he knows that he needs to be on everybody's good side. This is coming from deep down. This is the reality of who David is. We're going to see how significantly that reality is tested and proven. So chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Where had he been? He'd been living on the edges of the Philistine territory in the given city of Ziklag, but now he knows he needs to move into Judah. But before he does, as David always does, he asks God. He seeks God's will. He doesn't have a plan here. He has a posture, and the posture is, okay, God, what are you doing? Where are we going? What's next? And so he says, should I go up to Judah? Now, remember, Judah is his tribe, and also uh, Judah is the, the people that he's just had a great victory to their benefit of because uh, the Amalekites that he tracks down that had sacked Ziklag had just had this great raiding uh, trip through Judah. And so he brings the loot back and restores it and shares it broadly. 
And so he prays, and God uh, guides him to Judah and to Hebron. Now, the only thing the Bible has really said about Hebron so far is that it's one of the cities of Judah and that it's one of the cities of refuge. Remember these cities that were appointed uh, where people could flee uh, if there had been uh, if there had been an accidental killing, so that the avenger of blood uh, appointed by the family wouldn't be able to take their lives. It was a place of safety, a place of refuge. Um, but here, Hebron's where he ends up. Why not Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem doesn't exist. Okay, the city of Jebus does, and it's in the hands of the Jebusites. And so he sets up his capital, if you will. In Hebron. Verse 2, so David went up there and his two wives, uh, we've met both of them already, one that he gets while he's fleeing um, from Saul, and we don't really know that story, and the other one, Abigail, we do know the story, um, and also Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal and Carmel, and David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. So his whole group here relocates from Ziklag to Hebron. Verse 4, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now notice who's acting there. David says, Should I go to the tribes of Judah? God says, Yes, go to Hebron. And he gets there, and it's the elders, the, that's what it means by the men of Judah. They come and they say, We want you as king, David. David doesn't come to Judah and say, Why don't you appoint me as king? They appoint him as king. And then notice this, verse. Uh, four halfway through, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. Remember what happened? Saul's body, apparently after this Amalekite has come through and taken the jewelry, Saul's body is found by the Philistines. They recognize him for what he is. They behead him. Uh, they mutilate his body and they hang him up on display as well as the body of Jonathan. And the men of Jabesh Gilead come together and courageously in the middle of the night raid the city where these bodies are being put on display and bring them home uh, and, and bury the bones, right? Remember also the reason why Jabesh Gilead does that is because they're the ones who Saul significantly saved their hides earlier on in 1 Samuel. And so when David finds out that it's Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, verse 5, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. He says, God bless you for what you did. May God show you favor. Now it's interesting here. He says here, um, because they showed loyalty to Saul. That's the little Hebrew word, hesed. It's the one that's always used of covenant relationships. It's the one that God is used, uh, of, used of God in his relationship with Israel that's sometimes translated loving kindness or loving faithfulness. It's one of the primary terms in the Old Testament uh, for God's relationship with his people. It may be here that David is recognizing that their covenant commitment that they've made to Saul it can no longer be fulfilled because Saul is dead. And so he basically says, may God repay you now that Saul is unable to. May the covenant be completed. May you be blessed by the Lord, verse six. Now may the Lord show steadfast love, that's the same term, has said, and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. He takes it on himself 
to reward them, to take up Saul's uh, blessings of them, to uh, become their covenant partners. Verse 7, now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And so he basically uh, wants to start a new relationship with them, a covenant relationship um, as the king. Now here's the problem. Jabesh Gilead, that's in Benjamin territory. Okay. And so here, once again, we could see, we could read this as if David is smartly going, all right, who can I get on my side the quickest to make this whole thing happen? But I would suggest to you a better way to read it is this is really how he feels. David knows the courage and the risk that goes into it, and he wants the Lord's blessing on them because of their treatment of Saul. And so, on the other hand, here's what happens in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manahem. Okay, and so Abner is, once again, Saul's number one gun. He's He's the general of Saul's army. He's now without a king. And so he takes Ishbosheth, who's one of Saul's sons. In fact, Saul's only living son, because Jonathan and two other brothers died on the front lines. Okay, so he is the only one with the right to the throne. Now, to be clear here, he doesn't actually have the right to the throne. That was taken because of Saul's disobedience. None of his sons were to be king because of his disobedience. But Abner here takes him, and he takes him to Mahanaim. Now, Mahanaim is back on the Transjordan side of Israel, okay? It's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the other side of the River Jordan. It's that territory where the two and the half tribes live. It's not actually in the land. Um, and this makes a lot of sense. It's a safety measure. He retreats deep into the places uh, where, uh, where Israel will respect the kingship of Ishbosheth, um, and it's also far away from Hebron, far away from Judah, across the River Jordan, and so there's some safety in it. Um, now, just in case, your translation here or other places may say Ishbaal. Uh, Ishbaal means uh, the man, Ish, like Genesis. I will call her woman because she was taken out of man. I will call her Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Ish means man, and Baal is this word for Lord that's also used of one of the gods of the Canaanites. Now, Bosheth here means shame. And so some people suggest that his name is changed over the course of his reputation from the man the Lord to the man of shame. And it may just be because Israel doesn't like to use names that have Baal in it, and so we know other places where they change names to make different points. Or it could be because he's really not an impressive individual, and he lives a life of shame. He only does three things in the story that we're going to see. Uh, he complains to Abner. He, um, he gives David back his wife, uh, Michal, at his request, and he sleeps. That's it. That's his whole reign. The two years that make up his life, those are the only things he ever does. The real actor in this government is Abner. Okay. Ishbosheth gives legitimacy to Abner's rule. That's what's really going on. It's a puppet government. Okay. And so here Abner takes him and he sets him up and notice verse 9, he made him king over Gilead 
and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Okay, so notice what we have here. We have two kings reigning over portions of Israel. It's interesting because after the role of Solomon, because of the failures of Solomon, the kingdom is split. And so we have Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and for the rest of Israel's history, there's Israel and there's Judah. But that's actually where things start here, because some stand with, uh, with Saul and his line, and others stand with David. Now we have a few more details here, verse 10. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. So he never reigned over all Israel because Judah had, had anointed David as king. Verse 11, in the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay, continuing on, verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Okay, now Gibeon is relatively close uh, it's, it's in Benjamin, relatively close to Judah. If you didn't know this, they're neighbors. Of the tribes of Israel, Benjamin's border is Judah. Their northern border is the southern border of Judah. Okay, and so they're moving back from the Transjordan into Benjamin, and they're moving in this way, and it's relatively clear by doing so that they are on the offense. Okay, they're coming to attack Israel. In fact, it makes sense why this might be the case. It's not said in the text, but it might be because of Jabesh Gilead. It might be because they have been ingratiated to David and, uh, and basically here Abner takes action. And so, sitting in Hebron, Joab, who's David's number one general, hears about the approaching of Abner and his armies. So he goes out to meet them. Verse 13, Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out to meet them at the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And so here's what happens. Abner makes a suggestion. He says, let's solve this by representative fighting, okay? We've already encountered this in the book of Samuel. That's Goliath, right? Goliath comes forward and he says, look, there's no reason to spill a bunch of blood. You send out one champion to represent Israel and face me, and if you win, we will become the servants of Israel. No battle needed. And if I win, the opposite will happen. That's Abner's suggestion here, and so they take 12 men of Benjamin and 12 men of David's, and they put them together uh, and this is supposed to solve the fighting, okay? Uh, whatever happens here. But notice what happens. Verse 16. Each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. Helkath Hazurim means the field of sword edges. And so get the picture here. It's pretty dramatic. These 12 men take their place to fight one-on-one, -on -one. And at the same time, all 12 of them on each side grab each other by the head and pull out their swords, and they all, all 24 of them, drop dead right there. Okay? That's what you call a draw. That's, that's what this is. It doesn't resolve anything. In fact, it escalates instantly into an actual 
battle. Verse 17, the battle was very fierce that day, and Abder and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So an actual battle broke out, and David's sign is winning. In fact, we're going to see winning significantly. Verse 18, the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Okay, so there are three brothers here who make up some of the stronger and more notable people in David's army. It's going to be significant to remember those relationships for what happens next. Um, But remember, once again, Joab is one of David's primary generals. Abishai is also a primary general. He's the one who was standing next to Saul while Saul was asleep and offered to kill him for David. Uh, And then they have a younger brother, uh, Asael. Now it says, Asael was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. He had a reputation for being incredibly quick on his feet. Verse 19, and Asael pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. So get the picture here, okay? The battle is raging, and David is pushing the people of Benjamin back. And so they're on the run and kind of fighting as they run. And Asael decides, I'm going for Abner. Now, a couple of things. Remember that just a few years before this, Abner and Joab and Asael uh, and their brother Abishai are all on the same team. They all know one another. Okay? Second thing you need to remember is Abner is a significant fighter. And so when we look at this story, that Asael, who's relatively younger than these ones, sets his eyes on Abner is ambitious, to say the least. He is convinced that he can take the strongest, the greatest in the army. And notice here that Abner's part is basically to get him to come to his senses. Verse 20, Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asael? And he answered, It's I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. There's two options here. One suggestion is that Asael isn't armed. That's why he's so stinking fast. He just has a small dagger or something. But as we're going to see, Abner is is armed with a big spear. And so he may be saying, look, if we're going to do this, at least stop and get a better weapon. What I think is more likely here is he's basically just trying to get him off his tail, saying, pick someone else. Any of these you could take out and wipe out. Just turn aside. But Asael refuses he would not turn aside from following him. Verse 22, Abner said again to Asael, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? It's worth remembering here that we're talking about a civil war. And so just like our own American civil war, in some places, this is family against family. And so Abner says, I don't want to kill you I know your people. Your people are my people. He's not interested in that. But uh, Asael is adamant that he is going to take Abner's life. So again, verse 23, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out of his back. And so notice what happens here. They're in a full run. And he just turns around and he takes the back end of his spear. That is not the mortal end of the spear. And he runs it into this guy's stomach. Most likely here, his goal is not to kill him. If he wanted to kill him, he would have used the other end of the spear. He's just trying to give him, you know, that hit to the solar plexus that will stop him. But he's so fast. He's so swift. And it happens so quick. 
that the butt end of a spear goes directly through him and kills him. And he fell there and died where he was. No kidding. And all who came to the place where Asael had fallen and died stood still. Right? They, they stop fighting. They stop chasing the enemy because they're so shocked and grieved by finding Asael in this way. And remember, he's clearly been killed with the butt end of a spear. This is a striking and gory death. And they stop and they don't, don't go any further. Verse 24, but Joab and Abishai, his older brothers, pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. So they chased him all the way back. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on top of a hill. So notice what's happening here. Benjamin's been on the run and now they stop running. They stand their ground and they're ready for their last stand, if you will. Verse 26, Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? He says, hasn't there been enough death today? Haven't you already had the victory? Aren't we on the run? Do you really want to wipe us out? Now remember, the Benjamites have been here before. All the way back in the book of Judges, it's a city in Benjamin uh, that has that horrible thing happen where a concubine is raped until morning and her, uh, uh, the Levite who the concubine belongs to cuts her into 12 pieces, summons all Israel, and they almost wipe the Benjamites off the map. And so here, Abner kind of makes a call for sense and he says, don't you think it's worth time to stop? Are you going to do this until it's all over? You'll only regret it. Now, obviously, Joab is not just hopped up on bloodlust. It's vengeance that he wants. But still, he recognizes here that if he, if he attacks, it's not just Abner who will die. And so, verse 27, Joab said, As God lives, if you'd not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. If you could read this as a really good way, it'd basically be Joab saying, I was just waiting for you to call uncle. Okay. In other words, they waved the white flag, and that means something to Joab. That might be one way to read it, but whatever reason, he stops the army, and so the fight is over. Verse 29, Abner and his men went all night through Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, marching the whole morning until they came to Manahan. In other words, they don't stop for a rest. They run all the way through the night to get back to the safety of the other side of the River Jordan. Joab, verse 30, returned from the pursuit of Abner. When he gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asael. So they lose 20. Now, it may be that that 20 includes the 12 from the battle beforehand, which means that they lost 8. Okay, but, verse 31, the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. Okay, that's a rout. They lose at most, they lose at most uh, 32 men, and Benjamin loses almost 400. Okay, and so they have a tremendous victory here. Verse 32, they took up Asael, his corpse, and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. 
And so they also march all night and they get back to their hometown before the break of day. Chapter three, verse one. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So that's the only battle that's recorded for us, but there's other skirmishes. And consistently, the soldiers of Benjamin are being wiped out. Consistently, the numbers are the same as the battle we just read. And so Israel is growing in strength under David, uh, but the house of Saul is getting weaker. And then we have a list of children born to David while he lived in Hebron, verse 2. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, his second Chiliab of Abigail, the widow, Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maka, the daughter of Tamil, king of Geshur, and fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth Shephthiah, uh, the son of Abitai, and sixth Ethriam of Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. And you may notice the wife count's gotten a little bit bigger and it's going to continue to. For now, we'll just leave it there. Um, but while he's living and reigning in Hebron, he has a bunch of sons. Verse 6, while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now notice the language of that. What does that mean? Here, the house of Saul is weakening, but Abner is making himself strong. Okay? The idea here is possibly that either, like in the days of David, you know, uh, Ishbosheth has stayed at home napping and Abner has slain his thousands, right? It may just be that everybody understands that he's the powerhouse here and it means strong in reputation. It may also mean that this was always his ambition, that he has a, he has a plan to take the throne, okay? So notice what happens. He's been making himself strong in the house of Saul, verse seven. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Pause. Okay. We know from what happens later in the history of Samuel, we'll see this play out in the days of David and in the days of, of Solomon, uh, that sleeping with someone who belonged to the king's harem may be a political maneuver. Absalom does this with David's concubine and he does it intentionally and publicly out in not not the sexual act but going into her tent publicly as a declaration I am now king these are my rights okay so the suggestion here is not just that he's doing something sexually inappropriate it's that he's making a political mover maneuver he's making a grab for the kingdom now notice here we're not told if this is actually something Abner did it may be, and I would say that it's in his blood, it may be that the suspicion here is all on Ishbosheth's side, right? That he's worried about a takeover, even though Abner is totally on his side. Either way, whether Abner is power hungry and going to take the throne, uh, or he's not doing, done anything wrong and Ishbosheth is just uh, suspicious, this is the end of their relationship because of this accusation. And so, uh, verse 8, Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? Okay. Dog's head, I think we probably get, right? He's, he's basically saying, Is that all I am to you? Just the head of a dog, right? It's not very valuable. But when he adds, Of Judah, he might even be saying, Do you think I have no value to your enemies? Do you think Judah respects me so little that you can just treat me however because there's nowhere else I can go? And so notice what he says here. 
He says, to this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of the David, hand of David. He says, let's be honest here. If I came in the middle of the night and gagged and bound you and took you to David, there's no stopping me. I am the strength on your side of the table here. Uh, and he says, but I haven't done that. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. Now there's two ways to read that. One is the fault is wrong. The other is seriously, this is the fault you bring against me. And so notice verse nine, God's do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And so he basically takes a vow here and he says, God take my life if I don't help David get the throne. That's it. I'm not on your side anymore. Now my goal is to give David what he was promised. It, that reference from Dan to Beersheba means all of Israel from the north to the south. Verse 11, and Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. If he's committed this crime, Ishbosheth's only move is punishment, to do something about it. But he's a coward and he does nothing. So, verse 12, Abner sent messages to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring, you, bring over all Israel to you. He says, all right, David, I'm done. Let's make a deal, and I'll come work for you. Verse 13, and he said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, with you uh, when you come to see my face. And so he says, okay, we can make a deal. We can do this, but you need to bring me my wife. Now, you may not remember here, but this is the wife uh, that David was given by King Saul. It's one of Saul's daughters. And then while David is off and about running from Saul, Saul conveniently says, that marriage is over and gives her to another man. Okay. And so he says, that's fine, but I want my wife back. Now, it is worth pointing out that Michal gives uh, legitimacy to the succession to David because he really is the son-in-law of Saul. Okay. Um, but it also may just be uh, that, that this has been a tremendous injustice. The law in Deuteronomy 24 says that it's an abomination for a man who divorces a wife and then that woman is divorced by her second husband to take her back again. And it's worth pointing out here, that's not what David does. There was no divorce here. There was just open-ending adultery. He didn't divorce his wife. She didn't divorce him. She was just given to another man. Now, there's no getting around the fact that there is deep darkness and sadness in this story, as we'll see in just a second. What does this mean for Michal's second husband or, or adulterous, supposed, you know, fake marriage? It means the relationship's over. The thing about sin is that it makes messes, and we have a clear one here, okay? Now, why does he demand this of Abner? If, if Abner was trying to make a political move with the concubine, here he's basically affirming the kingdom of David, the legitimacy of his rule. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a test of his real intentions here. Verse 
uh, 14, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Patiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. And Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Like I said, there's, there's no way to paint that that's not messy. He follows her, just walking behind her as she's marched back to David, weeping and mourning until Abner finally says, that's it, you can't go any further. She's no longer yours. Verse 17, and Abner conferred with the elders of Israel. Okay, so notice here, the second thing that Abner does is he starts to talk with the leaders of Israel. What does he say to them? For some time past, you've been seeking David as a king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And so he goes to the elders of Israel that have been standing with Ishbosheth, and he said, Look, you've been wanting David to rule over you for some time. Now, this may be a reference all the way back when David was the beloved general of Saul. Remember, we saw over and over again, all the people loved David. Or it may be that the only thing that's kept Ishbosheth in power is Abner. And he says, Look, you all want David as a king. Let's do the right thing. But I want you to notice what he's doing here it's diplomacy. He's trying to convince the tribes of Israel to stand with David. And so he says, You desire it. The Lord desires it. In fact, he's given promises. David's going to be the deliverer who delivers us from our enemies. Verse 19 Abner also spoke to Benjamin. Now, that's a little bit more sensitive, isn't it? These are Saul's household. These are his relatives, and he spoke to Benjamin. And so he has this conversation with them, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. So he comes back with a good report. Everybody wants you to be king. Okay. Now, two things. One I just want you to hold on to, which is... If you were in David's position and you have all of Israel's support minus one person, who? Ishbosheth. What would you do? I'll tell you what Saul would do or what most of the kings of Israel would do. They'd go, look, you've lost all your support off with your head. That's not what happens. Second, remember here that Abner is now coming back to the other team where Joab is the ruling general. And they have beef, right? Because Joab's younger brother was killed on the front lines of battle. And so that's what happens next. Verse 20, when Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, and I'll gather all Israel to my lord the king, that he may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And so they're on good terms, they have a plan in place, but, verse 22, just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he'd sent him away and he'd gone in peace. When Joab and the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he's let him go and has gone his peace, gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you've sent him away so that he is gone? What is he saying? The same thing that the army said to David earlier. What a missed opportunity. He's the strength of the enemy and you just let him walk out of here alive? 
Verse 25, you know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. He says, it's just a plot, man. This is just to scope out Hebron, to lay out the layout of your palace so he can sneak in the night and take your life. So verse 26, Joab takes things into his own hands. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. And so unbeknownst to uh, David, Joab sends messengers chasing after Abner and says, hey, come back. There's still something else we want to talk about. Verse 27, and when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately and there struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asheel, his brother. And so we're told right there why he did it, not to protect David, but to get vengeance. Okay. Now, here's something. As I mentioned earlier, Hebron is a city of refuge. And we do know that uh, when deaths were accidental, people could flee to the city of refuge and get protection. If they didn't, they were liable to the avenger of blood. Okay? Now, that doesn't apply to warfare, period. Okay? That's, that's not appropriate here. But on top of that, where is, where is Abner killed? in the city gate of a city of refuge. Joab is way out of line here. It's nothing but wickedness. There's no trial, okay, with, uh, with those who were fleeing from accidental death when they get to the city of refuge, they're put on trial so that it's shown to not be an intentional murder, okay? There's no trial, there's no nothing. Joab is judge, he is jury, he is executioner, and he kills him unbeknownst to David. Once again, Imagine that you hear Abner, the general of Ishbosheth, is dead, and he died in the city of David in Hebron. Who do you expect to be the one pulling the strings? David. But he's innocent. He didn't know. He was on good terms with Abner. He had taken his peace treaty. But Joab is a different story. So verse 28, afterwards when David heard of it, notice how he responds. I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or holds a spindle. Uh, sometimes translations say there or holds a crutch. It's because if you are lame, the only work you can do is spindle work. Okay. So crutch is a good synonym. Or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. What's interesting is the majority of those are two things. One, they're the curses promised in Deuteronomy for those who don't keep the covenant. Two, half of them are not allowed in the temple. Okay, And so what he's recognizing here is that Joab has isolated himself out of God's covenant, out of uh, the people of Israel. Now, should David have called for Joab to die? I'll tell you this, that when he's making Solomon his son king, he says, one piece of advice I'll give you. You know what Joab did to Abner. Don't let him live. So I would suggest to you that David refuses to do the right thing here. He speaks this curse over, but he just... Remember, Joab is not, not just a close friend and a close soldier. He's family. He's a cousin of David. 
but he doesn't do the right thing, but he does recognize the wickedness of it. He recognizes it for what it is. Verse 31, then David said to Joab and all the people were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. Who's he speaking to there? Abner's murderer. He says, tomorrow we're going to have a funeral and you're going to walk in the procession and you're going to mourn like all of us. You're going to tear your clothes. You're going to be seen humbly mourning the death of Abner. And King David followed the bier. He followed behind the coffin. Verse 32, they buried Abner at Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. What does that mean? He wasn't a criminal. He wasn't marched to the death sentence. But instead, as one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And so he gives his judgment here. He stands with Abner. He weeps with Abner. And then, look, all the people wept again over him. Verse 35, then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And so he fasts for the day uh, in his mourning for Abner. Verse 36, and all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. They see this for what that is. It's weird. David, why? This is, this is your first taste of victory. This is the only living threat to your kingdom. And he's finally gone. But the thing that's so great about how the king was designed to function in Israel is he was to be an example. He was to live a godly life publicly before the people. And they see this and they go, that's the right response. That's the right move. They're pleased with David. And then notice verse 38, the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? He sees the full reality of who Abner was, not just Abner, the general of my enemies, Abner, the one I fought side by side with. Abner, the hero of Israel. He sees the whole of it. In verse 39, he says, And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Jeriah, Joab, are more severe than I am. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And so he makes a distinction here. And he says, he says I've been gentle, but they are, they are rough in their handling of these things. Let's keep moving. Chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all of Israel was dismayed. That was his only hope. Now Abner is dead. He has no leader for his armies. It is literally over. Now, once again, what would you expect? You would expect David to go, okay, now is the time. Even if he was just going to put Ishbosheth on trial or put him in prison. But he does nothing. David does nothing. However, verse 2, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The names of one was Benah, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners to this day. So there's these two men, and notice they're, they're generals in Ishbosheth's army. Verse 4, Jonathan the son of Saul had a son who was crippled in his feet. Okay, what? Why? Why are we talking about this? 
okay? Because Jonathan has a son, which means that Saul has a grandson. He's mentioned here so that we know what happens next with Ishbosheth, because let me tell you, he's going to die, isn't the end of the line of Saul. So it just throws this out here. And we find out that his son, Jonathan's son, is crippled in his feet. Why? He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. Okay, so Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. And his nurse goes, this boy's life is at risk. So she takes him and she runs out of their hometown of Jezreel. But as she fled in her face, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And we're going to come back to him, but he's just labeled there so that as we close the second generation of Saul's family, we know that there's still a third generation alive. Verse 5, now the sons of Rimmon and Berothite, Rechab and Banna, set out. About the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. Okay, so here's the third time we encounter Ishbosheth, and what is he doing? He's napping. Verse 6, and they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him, they put him to death, and they beheaded him. They took his head and went by way of Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. So notice here their plan. It's okay, the tide has turned. Let's, let's just handle the finishing blow so that we're on the right side of this thing. And why do they behead Ishbosheth after killing him? For evidence. Okay, because they don't want to carry a corpse all the way to Hebron. So they only take a head. Okay, and so they bring this head and they bring it straight to David. And notice what they say, verse 8. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king on this day and on Saul and his offspring. Now notice the convenience of the phrasing there, my Lord the king. Yesterday that was not true. They were fighting for the other side. They're, they're trying to manipulate their security or maybe even their position. But we've been here before, right? The Amalekite already tried this with David. And so, notice also, what do they say? The Lord has avenged my Lord the king. They look at the beheaded head of Ishbosheth and they say, this is what God did. And remember, they did that with their own hands, so what are they saying? We were working for God. But listen to David's answer. David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, and the sons of Rimmon the Bethrite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversary, adversity. He says, the Lord is alive, and the Lord has protected me from my enemies. And then he continues, verse 10, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him, and I killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require blood at your hands and destroy you from the earth? They say, Saul, your enemy, God has killed. And he says, no, wicked men have killed a righteous man. This is meekness. Now, it may even be here that he knows Ishbosheth for what he was, which was just a weak man in the wrong place who just happened to be a son of Saul. But either way, this was not the way things should have gone down. David is not interested in assassins. 
He's not interested in these things, and so he holds them accountable, and David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. Why did he do that? Why does he mutilate them? Because they mutilated Ishbosheth's body. It's an eye for an eye. It's a tooth for a tooth. Okay. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Do you see this? Who is it who rightly takes care of the bodies? David buries, uh, well, actually, we'll find out later, he even buries Saul and Jonathan. He inters their bones and moves them to care for them. He's the one who buries Abner. He's the one now who buries Ishbosheth at Hebron. I want to finish chapter 5 very quickly. It's not a very long one. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. Notice who's doing the action there. David doesn't finish his mourning, dust off his hands, and put out a proclamation. The king is dead. Long live the king. Israel comes to David as he's just sitting there. Who knows how long it takes for them to come, but they come and they say, we are your bone and flesh. That's kinship language. We are your people. Just like uh, in Genesis 2, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We are your people, they say. Verse 2, in times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be a shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be a prince over Israel. They know David has been called by God uh, and given promises. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. Do you remember how God rejoiced when Abigail came and interceded so that David didn't commit blood guilt against her foolish husband Nabal? And he said, God has spared me from blood guilt. Do you see how consistent and resonant that lesson is in his life? In fact, it's really striking here how much uh, he navigates through character and then he ends up killing one of his own generals to cover his own sin. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. But up to this point, uh, there's all this intrigue, there's all this chaos, and David walks through it with tremendous character. Not even the character that say it takes a bad situation and says, well, it worked out on my behalf. He has no interest in those things. He mourns those who have died. He honors those who have died. He keeps his hands entirely clean in the process and he waits for God to do what he promised to do. And here he finally becomes king over all Israel. And so how long did it take? Verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. Seven years after he's anointed he runs from Saul. Seven years he reigns only over Judah. Fourteen years into God's promises, finally he's the king over all Israel. Uh, and he reigns another 33 years from there. Verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Okay, to understand this story that happens here, a few things. One, Hebron is not the right place for David to continue to rule because it's way south in Judah. By choosing uh, the city of the Jebusites, he moves all the way to the border of Benjamin. Okay, it's a border town between Judah and Benjamin. In fact, if you look at the territorial handing out in the book of Joshua, this city is listed for both tribes. 
And so he rightly here recognizes to be king, he needs to be more central, and he moves towards the Benjamites. Uh, and he conquers a city that the Benjamites were supposed to conquer and failed. The Jebusites are one of the smallest enemies of Israel, one of the smallest original inhabitants in Canaanite, but they've also never been taken out. They've always just stood there. The second thing you need to understand about uh, what will be Jerusalem is the geography. And if you come with me in June, you can see it for yourself. But Jerusalem is built on a really narrow hill, and it's surrounded by deep valleys, okay? Uh, and so this city is strategic in the fact that the walls of this city are on the top of hills, and so if you're going to come up even against the walls, you're scrambling up towards the city. That's why here the inhabitants go, we don't even need soldiers. We're just going to put our lame and our blind against the wall with some rocks, and they're just going to push rocks, and we'll win the battle. That's the idea here. They don't even need soldiers because their city is their greatest defense. Okay. Um, we have digs that go back to when the city was in the hand of the Jebusites. We know generally what the walls were like. Uh, and it's a significant strategic place. Okay. And so they say this, verse 7, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now I just found this out. We have no idea what Zion means but that becomes the second name of Jerusalem for, for the rest of the Bible. Uh, we just don't really know where the word comes from. We have some guesses, but nothing really strong. Verse 8, David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now, clearly here, David is not saying that he hates the disabled. Okay? In fact, Mephibosheth sits eventually at David's table and lives right in his palace. Probably here he's just turning the language on. He says, okay, if the only ones inside are the lame and the blind, then that's who we're going to destroy. Okay. Um, but the other thing that's really hard here is the word there that's translated in the ESV water shaft is a difficult word. In fact, in some translations it says windpipe. And so that makes it sound like, make sure you hit all of them in the throat so that we leave no lame behind, only dead. The reason why water shaft is a good suggestion is not only is there some semantical reasons where that could be possible, but one of the significant fortifications of the city of the Jebusites and a later fortification of Je uh, Jerusalem was a tunnel so that they could get to fresh water from inside the city. Okay. If you've heard of Hezekiah's tunnel, which comes from later in Israel's history, it actually, in part, is this tunnel. In part, it's, it dates all the way back to the Jebusites. Now, the problem here is you basically are climbing up the inside of a well. It doesn't really feel like a dangerous, it's not just some open river that goes through a wall that they go through. It's a cave and a vertical climb up a rock face. They think they're totally safe. But David finds this and he exploits it and he only needs to get one man inside and that throws open the gates, right? And so he exploits this and this is how he has the victory. Uh, and so David built the city all around from the Milo inward. What that means is he started to bring in fortifications because it was only a small little fortress and there was no place left to build because it's on a hill. So he started to build up foundations around the hill to expand Jerusalem and make it his capital. Verse 10, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. Why is that important? Foreign fame. Here David has such a well-known reputation 
that all the way over in Tyre, they want to make a gift to King David. Now, it's, it's Hiram who will actually become the primary supplier for the temple in the days of Solomon. Um, but here we see he supplies everything for David's house. Verse 12, and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Oh, I wish we had more time. We're going to finish uh, right here, but I want to reflect on that idea. How did David know that the Lord had established him king over Israel? Because he didn't take any step in that direction. What would it be like psychologically if you were called to be God's king? If you had a calling on your life and it was soiled by these little compromises along the way? David can look at his place in confidence and say, this is God's work. I am God's king. And the thing that's been so striking to me as I've looked at this whole thing is thinking about our own line of work, our own vocations and calling, our own places that we've been given in this world. You know, we call it the rat race, and we neglect the fact that if we play in the rat race, that makes us rats. And David believes the promises of God so greatly that he navigates these things in a way that's just unheard of where he seems to have no bitterness or resentment for Saul, where he seems to have no hard feelings, nor does he use his power as king as a justification to bring about his own consequences on other people. He has a deep and tremendous character. But I want to remind you here that he has a deep and tremendous character because God is who he says he is, and David believes him. David doesn't come up with a perfect plan to get the throne. He believes in God's perfect plan and he waits for it. He settles with whatever God has in front of him and he waits for it. I think that's pretty profound. And then notice also David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people Israel. Remember Saul? Israel was for the sake of Saul. David knows that he's for the sake of Israel. That's character. That's believing the promises and knowing the true calling. Let's go ahead and stop there at verse 12, and we'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Father, I know many of us would like to pray the prayer, God, make us have a character as deep as David's. But it's worth pondering on the cause of that depth and its tremendous difficulty and injustice and suffering But Lord, we want to pray boldly tonight. If the way that makes us useful and usable and reliable as your vessels is that we would first be broken, if death must come before resurrection, if purification must come before power, if that's the only thing that will keep us from being corrupted by the good gifts that you give us, then we say, let it come, Lord Jesus. We want to know you like David did. We want to trust you like David did. We want to serve you like David did. And so we just willingly and freely, collectively, lay ourselves on the altar again and surrender and say, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. We pray this in your name. Amen.